This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. We're looking tonight at verses 11 through 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and we pray that you would bless our study of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we come to this passage, Paul, in a sense, returns to uh, something of the subject at hand, which has to do with his ministry and his role with regard to these Christians in Corinth and the church there uh, that they uh, make up. Paul had been discussing his own ministry in chapter 4 and describing his own weakness, being a jar of clay, an earthen vessel in which the treasure of the gospel was placed to show that the power of the gospel belongs to God and not to him. And he speaks of ministry as a kind of death, that death is at work in him, but through that life is at work in those to whom he ministers. And so he moves from that to actually thinking about death, physical death, real death. He spoke of death metaphorically in terms of his ministry, saying, uh, I die daily. Uh, obviously not to be taken as a literal death, uh, that happens just once, but for Paul, uh, the act of serving, of giving himself, of, uh, and certainly bearing in his body the effects of the persecution that he endured. And he ends chapter 4 with that encouragement that even as we waste away outwardly, we're being renewed inwardly, growing stronger inwardly, even as we grow weaker outwardly. And that leads him then in the first part of this chapter to actually talk about death. And we looked at that last time, uh, where Paul says that if this earthly tent or tabernacle is destroyed, we have a heavenly tabernacle, one made not with human hands, but prepared by God, an eternal dwelling. And last time we spoke about how Paul is not so much talking about a, a house in heaven, like Jesus does in John 14, in my father's house are many rooms, uh, or many mansions, as the old King James Version has it. Um, although he uses that analogy, it becomes clear he's actually talking about our resurrection body. And ultimately, our hope is not to be disembodied, to be a soul, a spirit, a soul in the presence of God in heaven while our body lies in the ground, but 
what comes with the resurrection, a resurrected and, and new and incorruptible and imperishable body. And even when we looked, looked a little bit at the uh, similarity of language here that Paul uses uh, as you compare it to 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of our own resurrection. Verse 4, so what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Well, Paul comes to the conclusion of that section in verse 10 by speaking of this desire to please God because we must all appear before Christ. Verse 10, before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, we, speaking here of Christians, not just the uh, unbeliever, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's always extremely dangerous and certainly unchristian or sub-Christian to think of grace, God's grace, as license to sin. Paul argues in Romans 6 that, in fact, it's quite inconsistent with any genuine experience of grace to think that God's grace gives us an open door to sin all we want, that his grace might abound, or that God is not concerned with sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. But as Christians... It does seem that sometimes the knowledge that we are saved on the basis of what Jesus has done can very subtly promote a carelessness about how we live. And Paul reminds us in verse 10, we want to live in a way that pleases Christ. We will appear before Christ. We will give an account to Christ for what we have done, as Paul says, whether good or evil. Now, our salvation isn't riding on that. Our salvation is determined by Christ, and yet... There will be evaluation. There will be a reckoning that he speaks of here. And Paul wants to give a good report. Paul wants to be able to, to, to stand before Christ and uh, have lived in a way to please Christ, not to sin against Christ. And then that, that sets the stage for this passage that we're looking at this evening, these few verses, 11 through 15. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. Now, as Paul goes into this passage, he speaks a little bit about his own mindset in his ministry, just sort of his perspective, what he thinks about himself in terms of his ministry to the Corinthians. Sometimes it's very helpful to get inside the mind of someone just to see how they think, how they think about what they do. I was reading an interview uh, recently or a conversation with a runner. You had to run the Reagan race yesterday and a long list in the paper of all the people who ran in the race and talking to a marathoner about what, how they view running a marathon, how they, how they, uh, how, what goes through the mind as you go through that 26 plus mile course. Uh, or to talk about someone in, in a field in, the, in which you are working, someone who may be well-known or has published research or whatever it might be, to see how they think about what it is that they do and what you can learn from that. Well, here we get a chance to see something of Paul's own thinking about his ministry, his relationship with this church, and what he thinks about that. And there are two things that stand out here. First of all, uh, Paul is very much aware of the fact that he is known by God. And second, he is very much aware of the fact that he is loved by Christ, that he is loved by Christ. First of all, then he speaks of being known by God, exposed to God, open to God, under God's scrutiny. There's, there's nothing that God doesn't see, nothing God is not aware of. And that's important to Paul, especially in, the fact, in light of the fact that there are these critics 
who are calling into question his motivation, calling into question his heart and what he's really after in regard to the Corinthians. And so Paul, thinking about himself having to stand before Christ and give an account of his ministry, says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, as a Christian, as one who will give an account, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, we think, well, that's right. Paul knows we're all going to face judgment, so he tries to persuade others to believe in Christ, right? No, that's not what he's saying here. That comes later. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. What is it he's trying to persuade others of? He's trying to persuade his detractors of his integrity. He's trying to convince those in the church in Corinth or even outside the church in Corinth who would speak ill of him or call him to question his ministry. He's trying to persuade them of his status as an authentic apostle of Christ, of the purity and integrity of his motives. He already spoke of that earlier in chapter 4. We renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refused to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so that's what Paul is saying. Because we will give an account to God. We try to persuade others. Because they're basically slandering Paul. However, whether he's successful or not in his persuasion, he can say in verse 11, But what we are is known to God. Whether he's able to convince men or not, his detractors or not, Paul says what we are is known to God. And really for Paul, that's enough. What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul is concerned about what these people are saying about him, but he's also concerned about the Corinthian church. Are they buying this? Are they believing this? And Paul appeals in in other places to his own experience among them, as well as telling them of his motives. And so he says, we try to persuade these people of, of our integrity, but, but God knows what we are, and we hope that you in your own conscience have seen who we are and what we are. Now, Paul seems a little bit gun-shy here because he, he may have reread that last sentence he wrote, and it's almost a lose-lose. You know, it's almost if you try to defend yourself, you come across sounding more guilty. You know, it's almost hardly worth the effort because you try to straighten things out, and it only seems to make it worse. And so in verse 12, he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, Paul has has already had to speak about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in uh, verse 1. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or, or from you? You yourselves or our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And so Paul is, is making it plain here. It's not his purpose to boast in himself, but rather by saying this to give the Corinthian believers something to, to say, an answer to give in the face of people who put more stock in outward appearance than the reality of the heart. That's all Paul wants here. He's not trying to commend himself so much as he's trying to give the Corinthian believers some reason to boast about him so that they can answer, so they can reply 
that it's not outward appearance. It's the heart. And Paul is saying his heart is known to God. His heart is clear before God. It's interesting. Paul is very much concerned about God as his as his witness. In First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul is able to speak to them. He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. This is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and then verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So Paul is setting himself before the Corinthians as one who is under the gaze of God. God knows his heart. He hopes that they sense his integrity as well. And he wants them, by saying these things, to have something to answer those, something with which to answer those who are detractors of Paul. That was a very important thing to Paul, to be aware that God knows his heart. In fact, later he's writing uh, to some Christians and he says, you know, it's but before you came to know God, and then he says, or rather, are known by God. I mean, we talk about the Christian life of coming to know God, but equally important to Paul is the fact that God knows us, that we are an open book before him. And that's very important. And then Paul gets back, perhaps, to addressing what some of the criticisms were. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Now, there's something here we're not aware of. That the that Paul was and the Corinthian Christians were, and it may be there were accusations against Paul. He's insane. He's a religious fanatic. Look at him. How he goes from place to place. You know, eventually some some uh, mob forms and they they beat him. They throw him out. He goes back in or he goes on to the next town. You know, can this guy possibly be in his right mind? And Paul is answering that. If we are beside ourselves, if we are out of our minds. It's for God. It's passion for the gospel. It's zeal for Christ. And, re- and basically he's saying, is really, that's between me and God. But then he says, if we are in our right minds, it is for you. Insofar as my ministry is, is approved, as far as it's recognized as valid, that's for your sake. And so Paul's willing to take being thought a, a fool, being thought a fanatic, being thought even out of his mind, uh, can't help but think of when Paul uh, was accused of you know, his, his, his great learning driving him insane. And he says, no, uh, to Festus, no, I'm not insane uh, at all. These things, you know these things. These, these things didn't happen in a corner. Uh, and that's what Paul is saying here. Fine, if, if people want to think I'm a fanatic, well, it's really between me and God. It's, it's my service to Christ. But if we're in our right minds, if this ministry makes sense, it's for your sake. It's my service to you. And so that's, uh, and we've encountered that already. I mean, you see that throughout this letter. See it some in 1 Corinthians. Paul is concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about slander that's brought against him. But he knows, first of all, that he is known to God. God knows his heart. And his confidence is second, that those to whom it's really important to be accepted will see through the slander and see the reality of his heart for them and recognize uh, that he is a minister to them of Christ. He doesn't need a letter of recommendation for someone. They themselves came to Christ through his ministry, and they themselves are a living letter of recommendation that his ministry is heaven-sent and that he is serving Christ. So that's the first thing, to be known by God. 
Countless Christians since Paul have been misunderstood, uh, have had their detractors, uh, have been falsely accused, have been suspected, have been, have been spoken ill of, uh, and there comes a point where they simply have to leave their reputation in God's hands and trust Christ that he will vindicate them uh, and that they will, they will be all right. When Charles Simeon, an uh, English Puritan minister, went to his church, uh, for years, he was rejected. They wanted someone else, and they would, in fact, lock him out. And there were some in the church who wanted him, but many did not. And he experienced persecution and resistance from his own church for years. And that eventually subsided, and he was the minister of that church, I believe, for 52 years. And a very fruitful and powerful ministry there. Uh, but for a while, he simply had to leave his call in the hands of Christ and serve Christ as best he could. And he's certainly not alone. Uh, Paul was merely the first of many uh, who were falsely accused, and strangely enough, by those who thought they were serving Christ or serving the church, but ultimately were serving only their own appetite for a following or for power over other people or for other self-centered ends. So known by God, it was an important aspect of Paul's ministry as he saw himself. The second is loved by Christ in this this familiar verse, 14 and then 15. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us or compels us, has this force over us. This is what makes me do what I do, the love of Christ. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a Bible study question here. Is that referring to Paul's love for Christ? The love of Christ, my love for Christ compels me. Or is it referring to Christ's love for him, the love that belongs to Christ for me controls me? Well, the way, the best way to answer that is to simply look at the context. What does Paul go on to speak of in the verses that follow? Well, he speaks of Jesus dying for all, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves and so on. Well, he seems to be speaking of Christ's love. It's Christ in his love who gave himself, who died, right? Christ died for all. So he's speaking here, I think, of, of Christ's love for him. Some translations translate it that way, but by translating it that way and giving the answer up front, they save you uh, the, the joy of puzzling through it for yourself. But if it says Christ's love controls us or compels us, that, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, now, Paul is saying this, you know, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God, if we're in our right mind, it's for you, for the love of Christ. Christ's love for me controls me. It's the overriding and controlling factor. Uh, now, he goes on to speak of the expression of that love. We've concluded this, that one has died for all. Now, when Paul says that, you say, well, see, that this this proves your limited atonement right there, you, you Calvinist, you. Uh, well, no, it really doesn't. Um, if Christ actually died for all, no one would go to hell because their sins have been atoned for. So on the face of it, that, that doesn't follow. But he's speaking here of, of ultimately of all who would, who would believe in Jesus, those for whom Christ did die. All of the elect or all of, all of the believers is really his point. Therefore, all have died, have died in Christ. Now, Paul sees Christ as being in some ways um, 
a corporate figure in the sense that he certainly lived for himself, but primarily he lived for you and me. He obeyed for us. He died for us. And Paul can speak of, of our living or of our dying with him and our being raised to new life with him. One great example of this is Romans chapter 5, where Paul actually is speaking here of Adam, who was the first corporate or federal head acting on behalf of others, Acts or rather, Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, Paul is speaking here of Adam and then Jesus as the second Adam. And he says in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that was, of course, Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Jesus' works. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, over one chapter in Romans chapter 6, Paul is elaborating more what Jesus did. And he says in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And that's what Paul has in mind when he says here that one has died for all, therefore all have died. When Jesus died, we died with him. If you were in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' death was your death. And, going on from there, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, Paul, under divine inspiration, leaves something out. He jumps from death to our living for Christ without having spoken of our being raised with Christ. It's sort of assumed. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Well, he fills that in in Romans 6 where he fleshes this out all out in much more detail. Uh, where he speaks of, uh, in verse 8, Romans 6 verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have died with him. We've been raised up earlier in Romans 6, as he says, been raised to new life in him so that we too might walk in newness of life. Well, that's what he's referring to here, although in a very compressed way. The love of Christ controls him, because Christ died for all, and all died with him. And just as he was raised up, all who believe in him, all who are in him, have been raised up to new life for this purpose, that they might no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. You know, you... Literally, no, that's not true. Paul wasn't hanging up there as on, you know, among the thieves who were crucified with Jesus. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that Jesus' death was my death. And in union with him, I've been crucified with him and I no longer live. Christ lives in me in the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, that's what he's talking about here. We've died with Christ, been raised with Christ, so that we should live for Christ, for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so those are two overwhelming thoughts or ideas that are in Paul's mind 
as he engages in ministry. One, in the face of slander and personal attack and efforts to discredit him, the fact that his conscience is clear before God, he's known to God. Two, that he is the servant of, of a Savior who loved him, who died for him, and who has purchased life for him. And Paul can say that that controls him. That's a strong verb. It's not just that he's moved by it. It's not just that it's true of him. That is the, the overriding, controlling factor in his life. And that's what keeps him going, even when it would be tempting to quit. That's what keeps him going, even when it would be tempting just to lash out at his detractors and get angry. The love of Christ. He has a Savior who died for him. And more than that, he died. Paul died with him and has a new life in him. And therefore is compelled, who's controlled, to serve Christ as long as he has breath. As I said before, Second Corinthians is in many ways Paul's most personal letter. And here he really does open to us his mind. But we need to ask if we have that same mindset in ourselves. Do we have a sense of living before God, of being open to him? Uh, and the desire to maintain a good conscience before him, regardless of what people might think of us or say of us. And none of us likes to have people criticize us. We all want to clear our good name. But there may be times when that's impossible. When you just have to do what's right, and whatever criticism or misunderstanding might arise, you simply have to say to yourself, well, the Lord knows. And that is enough. But also this great sense of Christ's love. We might expect the opposite. We might expect Paul to say, you know, I serve Jesus the way I do because I really love him. And that's true. Paul obviously did love Christ and felt a huge debt to Christ for what he had done for him. But that's not what Paul says here. He says Christ's love for him is what controls him, is what propels him to carry out the ministry that he had. Sometimes it can be hard to work up love for Jesus. We don't see him. He's not right there within arm's reach sometimes. Well, he is, but not physically, to where we can just uh, be right there with him. But the overwhelming thing for Paul was not his love for Jesus. It was the fact that Jesus loved him. And if Jesus loved him, implied, how can he help but not show that same love to others, even those who don't have anything good to say about Paul? I'll confess, in my own Christian life, uh, really struggling with that. You know, having a concern for our own name can be very hard, can be very difficult sometimes. But to leave our reputation, our uh, our name in God's hands in good conscience. But then also, I think we need to pray that God would give us that same sense of Jesus' love for us. That Jesus would love you enough to die for you. I mean, we, we hear that, we know that, but has that lost its impact because it's so familiar that the Son of God himself bled and died on a cross for you, bearing the sins that you committed today, sins you committed three hours ago. Jesus died because of what you did, but he did it because he loved you. And Paul says that that is an overriding and controlling and compelling factor in his ministry. And I think if we're going to follow Jesus the way we want to, and if we're going to serve Jesus the way that we want to, both of these need to have a, a higher place in our thinking than they do. Being known by God, being loved by Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this view into the mind of your servant Paul. And Lord, we pray that these things too would loom large in our own thinking about ourselves and our relationships with other Christians. 
and about our service to you and to your church. Father, we pray that you would forgive us when we're much more concerned about our own reputation and not very concerned about the love of Christ, when we're really more controlled by a concern for our own name. But Lord, we pray that we would have the same balance that Paul does. We'd be controlled by a sense of your love, even as we leave our reputation in your hands. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.